Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Ooh. Snakes. Not snakes on a plane, guys. We watched Anaconda. Oh, man. Snakes on a plane. I know. We didn't even think about that. That's a scientific film. This was from 97, no? Yep. 97, starring John Voight and everybody. (sighs) Owen Wilson, Ice Cube, Jennifer Lopez, Eric Stoltz. Not Ashley Judd, but someone who looks like Ashley Judd. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I can't remember who that was. Baby bird. Oh, God, John Boyd had the worst accent. He was supposed to be from Paraguay, and it was just, like, horribly offensive. It's really bad. It's, like, offensive on all levels that it can be offensive. It's offensive to Spanish speakers. It's offensive to people who think that acting should be good. It's, like... (laughs) The whole nine. It's as offensive as possible. Let's, like, take a listen to the trailer. Let's do it. They have come to the world's most isolated jungle to explore the unknown Amazon. Shishama worship giant snakes, anacondas as gods, perfectors. What is this? Anaconda skin. Is snakes up there this big? This skin is three or four years old. Whatever shed it has grown since then. Now, they are the ones being watched. Do you hear that? The ones being followed. Nobody move. The ones being hunted. There's something down there. That's right. No, I really mean it. I really mean it, too. Anaconda. When you can't breathe, you can't scream. You need some protection. You need my protection. I got anaconda skin. It's like the laziest, just like letting my jowls hang like... Oh, man. A lot going on there. Yeah, I can't believe he did. I mean, the movie was nominated for six Razzies, but it seemed to have been like swept by the postman. The Kevin Costner movie, oh which came out the God. same year. Oh my God, I totally So it was nominated, that. but it didn't win. It just didn't. It wasn't <laughs> even good enough to win the Razzies. Oh my God. Okay, a lot of stuff going on in this. I learned that the CGI for the Anacondas cost $100,000 a second. Yeah, that was a different time for CG costs. Right. That's for damn sure. And they were fucking clunky. But then they, they also... They did not look great. They had to have the actual like live-action snake, right? They had so an like, animatronic snake. There were very few shots. Yeah, not live-action. Like, it was a real... <laughs> they just got an anaconda. He took no. some acting training and... <laughs> yeah, you, you look left. <laughs> yeah. Look right. Make some weird... Yeah! sounds but i think the only ones were when it's like really flying around in right. the in the water and stuff like Home that is when jumps and then he goes and catches him winds him up that yep. kind of stuff okay one of my favorite little details was ice cube listening to a song that he wrote <laughs> yeah, like listening to it like, on the play, like, i was like that's not an ice cube song and then i looked it up and it, it turned out like he it's not an ice cube song but he wrote it oh the mic of course <laughs> But this is from the writers of Top Gun, Turner and Hooch, Dick Tracy, and the Flintstones' Viva Rock Vegas. What? <laughs> well, so how did it, what happened here? Because this had the potential to be at least, you know, not quite as terrible as it turned out to be. I don't know. I mean, what happened with Piranha? You know, right, exactly. I mean, like, some movies are bad. I mean, who was really like, of all the people, 
John Voight cool. is this like sketchy Paraguayan guy. I know. Apparently, it was originally supposed to be Jean Renault. Who's and that? He's that French actor. And I was just thinking that, like, you know, the the French actor. <laughs> he is the French actor. He. I totally think he qualifies as the right. other than Gerard Depardieu. I was, say, I was like, what about Gerard? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wanted to say too that this National Geographic crew that gets like taken hostage by John Voight yeah. is supposed to be looking for this group called the People of the Mist. Yeah, the Shuishama. No one knows what it actually is because you can't understand John Boyd. But (laughs) (laughs) there was a classic lost race fantasy novel written by this guy, H. Ryder Haggard, in the late 1800s. And that was about a British adventurer seeking wealth in the wilds of Africa, finding romance and discovering a lost race called the People of the Mist. So it's a novel from the late 1800s, and then this movie took that and was like, the people of the mist. Yeah, right. Let's just put that in there, sprinkle that on top. Yeah. Well, because this whole movie, it's like, yeah, it's not just the anacondas. It's John Voight really is like the madman that they have to deal with. And and then in the background, there's just like giant fish or giant fish, giant snake. (laughs) Might as well have been. It could have (laughs) easily been fish. Do you have any other facts about the movie? No, I mean, other than the anacondas don't want none. Unless you got Buns Hunt, and then J-Lo's in the movie, and so it all is, goes back to Sir Mix-a-Lot. Right. Anaconda. <laughs> Let's learn some anaconda facts, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, so anacondas are actually members of the boa family. I did not know that, because there's like apparently different types of anacondas, but the mm-hmm. big one is the green anaconda. So mm. the scientific name is Eunectus or Eunectus, uh, Murinus. So Eunectus means good swimmer, which makes sense, but uh. then Murinus means of mice, which of course implies that green anacondas eat mice. Now, of course, as with any other snake, they are capable of eating mice, but they're <laughs> right. giant fucking snakes, so mice is that's not actually going to cut little, the mustard, it's right? It's like an amuse-bouche. <laughs> yeah, totally amuse-bouche. A mouse-bouche? A mouse-bouche. Fuck off. Fuck you. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> fuck you. But yeah, so they are really good swimmers. They actually spend most of their time in water. Sometimes they're called the water boa, and because of their size, they have a really hard time moving on land, but they can, you know, like drift across the the top of the water pretty easily well the water with all that buoyancy you can just swim right through it no matter how heavy you are apparently only smaller snakes generally sidewind you know like sidewinding across the sand maybe you've seen is that like uh when they do like that weird like zigzag zigzag yeah but but they do like if you step step back they are just like moving sideways across the sand but that's that's all you can yeah the zigzaggy situation but they can also hold their breath under the water for up to 10 minutes because anacondas like crocodiles have eyes and nostrils that are designed to poke above a river's surface. Right. So best of both worlds. And then, of course, if they want to just dry off, instead of laying, stretching across the land, they just climb trees and just, like, hang out to dry. Hang off the branches. Yeah. So then the name anaconda comes from the Tamil word anacolra. Not sure if that's how you say that, but that means elephant killer, which makes a little bit more sense. Now, I haven't seen any info of them eating elephants. No, I don't think they can. But, okay, so these green anacondas in our movie Anaconda, they were in the Amazon, but they are also found in other swamps and marshes in, like, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia. Pretty much all South America. Yeah, exactly. It's not like you find them in Australia as well, which I, for some reason, thought, because I was like... The Outback just has all the I feel like there's so many snakes out there. Yeah, Yeah. I would just assume that, like, and they're big. They've got the biggest of all. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So it's the heaviest snake in the world, and it's also the one with the greatest girth in proportion to its length. Right. We all know it's all about girth. Girth, right. (laughs) It's all about girth and girth. It's all about girth and girth. (laughs) 
Right, what's the longest one? Well, they can grow up to over 17 feet long, and like there have been reports of them being as long as 35 or 40 feet, but those are not really corroborated. Right. Like, there's been some things that we think like 22 feet, but generally speaking, the females are much bigger than the males, and they tend to be about 17 feet long and the largest. Yeah, I feel like this is a situation where it is about the girth, right? Because like yeah. the, the longest snake in the world is supposed to be this reticulated python, mm-hmm. which I think the longest one on record is Medusa at 25 feet, 2 inches. But when you think about, the, like you said, the mass of being like mm-hmm. a foot in diameter, that's like three or four rolling pins put together, I saw. <laughs> like, why did you need that? Like, Was that the one? How, like, hmm, measure it in rolling pins. How, how do the people, just the normal use of America... <laughs> yeah, let's talk to the average person. <laughs> Well, I guess there's a $50,000 cash reward for anyone who can catch an anaconda that's 30 feet or longer, and that has not been claimed. Ah, okay. And the Guinness World Records even say that this species has been subject to the most extreme size exaggerations of any animal. Right, totally. So that makes a lot of sense. But still, like... Fucking 10 to 15 foot long snake is still pretty extreme. So their diet consists of wild pigs, Mm -hmm. deer, turtles, and they even sometimes have been known to eat jaguars. No way. Yeah. Well, did they do that in the movie, right? They Do they eat jaguars in the movie? The, the one, that one black, or was it a Black Panther or oh, something yeah. like that? I don't that's, know. Yeah, is that no, a jaguar? They, what is I a jaguar? I think you're right. I think it, it was a big cat. <laughs> it was a it big was cat. That's... I thought when you were like, they did it with that one jaguar, right. John Voight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they usually have like a, a watch and wait approach for catching prey. Mm-hmm. So it's like they don't chase much like they do in the movie or like hunt. They usually wait for their prey to come close and then they strike. And while it theoretically could eat a human, there's never been a verified report of that happening. And actually, a dude on the Discovery Channel tried to get an anaconda to eat himself alive. I saw that. He had like a snake-proof suit. Yeah, and he like, he like, (laughs) he was like smearing pig's blood on himself and stuff like that. And then when he got it to attack, after about a minute of constricting, he was afraid his arm was going to break and he used the safe word and his team cut the snake off of him. See, that's already fucking crazy just as the person being eaten alive. And this was for a show called Eaten Alive. Eaten Alive was the name of the special. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was this guy, this naturalist, Paul Rosalie or whatever, and he's getting swallowed. But a bunch of people like animal rights activists got really pissed off at the Discovery Channel because, Uh you know, of course, they claim that the animal was left unharmed. But like zoologists are definitely not convinced that. In order to get it off of him, they had to maybe hurt the animal. Totally. I mean, even just like the whole setup that rubs people the wrong way. But then one reptile expert called the stunt impossible while other crazy. Critics were pointing out that Discovery has repeatedly misled viewers with these like fake mockumentary styles. So it's kind right. of unclear what the worst thing they did was. Mm-hmm. Just the a- actual idea of being eaten by a snake or the fact that it's all like bogus, I guess. Right. Also on the point of whether or not anacondas would or could eat humans. Obviously, they could if they wanted to, especially children. Mm-hmm. But I found that they typically don't like to attack prey that's going to put up much of a fight. So yeah. like they sometimes eat the caiman alligators and stuff, and they usually sustain injuries there. So it's a lot easier easier to maybe attack a white-tailed deer that's 120 pounds or I saw a capybaras is that how you say their name yeah I saw that I I didn't even know what that was you have oh it's a big they're like the biggest fucking rodent on some of the like roadside attractions they'll be like look at the largest rat in the world and you go and you're like that's a capybara are those rodent side attractions no (laughs) road fuck off just fuck off will you (laughs) did you learn much about their teeth no 
Do oh they... God, they're crazy. They have anacondas have these like four mostly parallel lines of backwards pointing teeth that help mm. like keep the prey in place and like hold it there. And then their lower jaw adds another two lines for extra assistance. So like while they're constricting you, the teeth hold it in place. So you're being like fucking squeezed to death. If but... you wriggle free, it's yeah. like the teeth are pointing in the direction of no wriggling <laughs> will be taking place. <laughs> well, as far as like in the movie, they open it up with like a title card that says that anacondas will puke their prey back up just to like feel the thrill of killing it and oh, eating it right, again of course because they're sociopaths and at the end of it they do puke john voight back up he winks <laughs> inexplicably winks and we're like is he alive is he what is this twitch we never address it again that's the last you see of him but I, so as far as like puking prey back up and then eating it again this is accurate adjacent Okay. This is not it's adjacent actually to accurate. Understood. True. What does happen is that after an anaconda eats an enormous meal like a deer, it'll be immobilized, and because the digestive systems are working in full power, it's super slow and heavy. And if some kind of danger appears, it can throw the deer back up to make a quick escape. Oh. So that all of its energy isn't devoted to digestion and slowness. I mean, we've all had Thanksgiving dinner, right? <laughs> and you're like, ah, ah, ooh, ah, and then like. Maybe well, I should make maybe a little I room. Maybe I should make some room. But. <laughs> But I did see a video of an anaconda puking up a whole cow. Gross. It was insane. Because oh. it's still got its fur on it. Because I read about this difference between regurgitation and vomiting. Right. Regurgitation is like before it's actually hit the Digested stomach. Digested and stuff, right? And then vomiting is like when it's actually... It looked like John Voight was vomited up because yeah. he's got all this goo all over him. Right. But this cow just looks like a cow. Right. I, I, well, well, I would say he looked more regurgitated. It was like John Voight, but with some... Like, you're, there's going to be some goo, right? There was very little goo. Okay. Because like, in, in the movie, it looks like his skin is partly oh, melted. Oh, yeah, it's melty. Yeah. The, in this... It was just like the cow, everything was intact. But it was dead because mm -hmm. it had been squeezed and stuff. Right. And See, that's what always, I'm sorry to interrupt you, no, but no. I'm like so flabbergasted by the idea of, you know, eating something alive. I mean, even as, right. though you squeeze it, maybe it's not completely dead while you do that. Like what, how much longer is it conscious at all? I don't I even know. know. It's nuts. The whole concept of swallowing something whole to me is crazy. Yeah. And then it does have teeth, but the teeth are not for chewing. No, <laughs> it's just to hold you in place. <laughs> that is wild. Did you know that anacondas form breeding balls i did read about these breeding balls this sounds nuts now this is because there are more males than females mm -hmm. typically and before you'd mentioned that the females are a lot bigger and that's because they have to carry eggs and males don't uh -huh. just fact lit when anacondas are feeling a little frisky <laughs> up to 12 suitors will seek out one receptive female and rather than taking turns like a full-on gangbang they just coil around her simultaneously and they form a ball for up to two to four weeks now during this weeks. time weeks weeks this ball is taking place. My God. She's the real belle of the ball here. <laughs> now, during this time, they just like wrestle for position. And then, the, you know, the lucky suitor to shove his competitors aside and actually mate embeds this wax-like plug inside his partner's cloaca, which prevents the other males from fertilizing her. Side Whoa. note, a cloaca is that posterior orifice. It kind of looks like a vent on a snake that serves as the only opening for the digestive, reproductive, and urinary tracts so of certain animals. Urethra, pooper, and vagina right. all in one. Oof, one-stop shop. <laughs> anyway, so that's gross. <laughs> <laughs> but they literally plug the hole yeah. after, like, They're like, nobody else is getting, yeah, sperm's no, getting no in. Yeah, no sloppy seconds for you fucks. Wow. I know. God, just get over yourselves, <laughs> boys. Nope. And then the anacondas practice something called ov ovoviviparity? Which just means that they give birth to live young. I read that, that they don't lay eggs. Well, what's crazy is they, like, 
carry eggs. For 8 to 12 weeks, the females carry around 20 to 80 eggs inside their body, but then they hatch inside their body, and then the young, like, wiggle their way out. So, like, a healthy anaconda mom can squeeze out over 30 babies per litter. And Whoa. 30 babies that you they're only just like squiggling around inside you until they wiggle free and then from then on they're fully independent from birth and they don't fuck with the mom then they're just like donezo yeah, it's I, bizarre I did read that like as soon as they're born the, they instinctively know how to survive their first move is usually hiding right right but sure. the mom is immediately like and that one's done yeah <clears throat> I, I just find it so odd when you like the more that I've watched these awesome nature documentaries and you just kind of see the humanity for lack of a better mm. term with regards to animals and their relationships with their young and that kind of thing yeah, you're sort yeah. of like ah oh, I see that and then there's some of these creatures that's just like well you wiggled free from my vent and right. now I'm never gonna see you again good luck out there yeah but but so the anacondas are being killed both legally and illegally and their skin is sold and they're also sold in the illegal pet trade and they're, right. they're not endangered yet but they definitely do recommend that you don't have an anaconda as a Sounds pet like a terrible idea i guess because first of all they quickly outgrow their cage they're dangerously strong and then they also release an unpleasant odor when bothered oh no skunk style yeah interesting so don't have one in your home right if you're one of those dudes who's like i like keeping exotic animals totally. and i had i had snakes when i was a kid but they were like tiny little dudes and i remember what well, i had a russian rat snake and he got he got kind of mean at some point and i was like oh this is a little too rich for my blood and i like you know brought him to a little snake sanctuary was he because, like attacking you i mean yeah he just got aggressive it was my bad because it's like you have to keep handling them right, right. like they have to always be used to humans you can't just okay. you know so and then i was going through my teens and i wasn't giving him enough attention <laughs> it's interesting that adult anacondas aside from humans hunting them don't have any natural predators so they can live up to like 10 years in the wild just naturally but also apparently you can they can live up to 30 years in captivity which sounds like terrible yeah i guess it's like you're living longer and worse yeah worse (laughs) for a lot longer congrats so this is not necessarily anacondas but sometimes snakes can have two heads Right. And okay. it's rare, and they usually don't survive long in the wild, but each head has its own brain, and each brain can control the shared body. Oh. So they have this really weird movements as both heads try to control the body at once. And it'll even get to a situation where one head might attack the other as they fight over food. So this comes from an incomplete splitting of a snake embryo, so it's a lot like conjoined twins. According to the National Geographic, a two-headed corn snake named Thelma and Louise... Oh, of course. Perfect. <laughs> ...lived for several years at the San Diego Zoo and even produced 15 normal offspring. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah, so that image that you have of like a two-headed right. hydra or something clearly comes from people seeing two-headed snakes in the wild. Wow, but I wonder what that would look like visually if if maybe just erratic movements. If like yeah. one's trying to go one way, the other's trying to go this way, and then it's like, this is you, I'm yeah, going like to fi- Crazy. How weird would that be to have your nerves fighting with other nerves? Right, I mean, it makes me think I'm like bipolar, but obviously mm-hmm. like maybe, more, <laughs> right, maybe right. more on like a schizophrenic or like multiple personality kind of level of just being like "Ah, so many ideas in my head and I can't control it or I wonder if it's more like a stroke where you know that you're like trying to form words but you're just your body isn't Right. Doing what you're telling it to do. <laughs> We're also like elevating a snake intellect. We're like, God, yeah. what kind of internal dilemmas? What are do they, they think? <laughs> what are they going through? I read this other thing about a species of non-poisonous snake that can become poisonous because it eats toxic toads and then steals the toxin from the toads and stores it in glands in their neck. 
And then when like the snake faces danger, it can release the toxin that they stole from the toads. And then they can even pass it on to their young where it'll protect the young snake from predators for a little while. Wow. We've talked before about like different animals that also exploit other animals. That's like just harvesting the toad poison and saving it for later. (laughs) Isn't that great? They have special glands in their necks that is made for external toxins to be held. That's fucking crazy. Well, okay. Let me interject here because in the movie we kept bitching about the ridiculous like pterodactyl sound that the snake kept making. Yeah, it was like screeching. Yeah, so just like, ah! like T-1000 in the lava at the (laughs) end. So this guy, Bruce Young, who has a PhD at the A.T. Still University of Health Sciences, he studied snake noises for the majority of his career and then he ended up like sharing some shit with mental floss. He was talking about how like most snakes, they make some kind of noise, whether it's like hissing, rattling, or rubbing their scales together to make a dry, raspy sound. This is scale rubbing. Whoa, that is... A very scary noise. Yeah. Then there is just regular rattling, obviously. Is some like dude like playing a flute nearby as yeah, it like comes out flute. of a? <laughs> yeah. Apparently, certain snakes, when cornered, produce popping sounds by forcefully pushing air out of the vents in their back ends. Those cloacas. In other words, they fart, fart. in self-defense. <laughs> Fucking comedy of air. A lot of fucking gas in there, man. <laughs> but like all of those sounds, right? It's either the rubbing of the scales, it's the the rattling of the tail, or pushing air out of your vent. <laughs> your, vent. your vent. That is my new euphemism. Dude, you need to vent right now. <laughs> but what's Whoa. yeah? So so this guy Young was trying to figure out if there were any like snake made sounds, and he honed in on the growl of the king cobra, which rumbles at a very low frequency. This is what it sounds like. That's a growl? It's a King Cobra growl. I would run from that. Dude, yeah. So did you know that they made fucking like lion sounds? No. No, not at all, right? So basically this guy Young ended up dissecting a bunch of preserved King Cobras. So he was equating it to the idea of blowing over a beer bottle. Right? Like you can make sound like, so when he dissected these snakes, he found a number of these little sacks in the trachea of the king cobra. So if the snake was pushing air across the openings, then the resonance would make a low rumbling sound. So it's not like vocal cords, but it's like jug band. Essentially, that's what (laughs) vocal cords are. Yeah. I mean, ours are a little bit more complex or a lot of bit more complex, but it's essentially the same concept. Yeah, I guess I didn't think about what vocal cords were before. So then he discovered that the pitch of this resonant noise depends on the gas that's being used to blow over it. So he decided to test this hypothesis by putting a bunch of angry king cobras in a room, getting them all agitated, and then recording their growls. And then once he had a baseline, he decided to dose them with helium. So, he, so then he immediately saw that there's like all these snakes that are like, rah, rah, but they sound like fucking Mickey Mouse. So he was like, for sure, this is them making the sound. It's not any rubbing. It is like straight up their in, vocal cords. With the, the air that they're actually yeah. taking into their lungs yeah yeah Yeah. they have lungs don't they i don't know who knows (laughs) they make some kind of sound they have trachea they at least take in air yeah Uh, Yeah. i don't think it's like the bugs where they just have like a tube right a tube it's it's slightly more complex than that yeah but so okay so already we know that they make sounds but 
he was also saying that the biggest misconception about snakes is that they're deaf. And actually, at certain frequencies, they can hear better than house cats can because sound waves travel through the muscles and bone in their heads and vibrate against their inner ears. Wow. So they sense it a lot more, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're talking to each other because the noises that they make are almost always at a frequency that other snakes can't even hear. Oh. So the reason that snakes make sounds of any kind, whether it's farting or <laughs> rattling or like growling, it's because you just scared them. And so if you scare them, go away. You know, it's uh, not necessarily to try to warn off other snakes. It's to try out to warn off other either predators or, you know, something else that scared it. Yeah. Isn't that fucking wild? Yeah. It's also really interesting what you said about like the way they hear. I've heard about these new headphones that are bone conduction headphones they don't actually send audio through your ear canal they actually attach to like around your ear and then they vibrate your bones in a way that makes it seem like you can hear perfectly and the word is about these headphones because they're now like being advertised on a bunch of podcasts i listen to is that like they're perfect for spoken word content and stuff like that and it allows you to still hear the outside world perfectly whoa and so you inside your head are hearing like the podcast that you're listening to the audio fidelity isn't like amazing for music and stuff but it's like good and (laughs) these are like the new headphone technologies i wonder if they did any king cobra research perhaps they did So they use a bunch of dynamite in this movie. Yeah, that's right. And I wanted to look into the history of that. So dynamite is an explosive that pretty much is just nitroglycerin and clay. Exactly what the clay material is made out of varies, but it's pretty much what it is. Mm -hmm. Nitroglycerin is incredibly volatile and the clay makes it stable. Okay. You put it into a stick and basically it's nitroglycerin that you can decide when it explodes. Dynamite. Dynamite. (laughs) It was invented in 1867 and quickly became a standard. But the inventor is a man named Alfred Nobel of the Nobel Prize fame. And he actually used the money that he made from selling the dynamite to start his Nobel Prize committee. Wow. And he originally sold it as Nobel's blasting powder, (laughs) but then decided to change the name to dynamite from the ancient Greek word dynamis, which means power. Ah, okay. Ah. They still use it all the time today in mining, quarrying, demolition, and other stuff like that. Are they still in the sticks? They're still in the sticks. Okay. Storing them is really difficult. I would imagine. So some people might remember this from Arst, the character from Lost who blew himself up. Mm-hmm. For those I, of you I who don't. watched Lost. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but after a year of sitting in a box, dynamite starts to weep or sweat. Okay. And they sweats nitroglycerin. And then that pools at the bottom of the box, making it incredibly dangerous. Oh, shit. So you can, like, move a box and the whole thing will explode because of all of this nitroglycerin that's sweat to the bottom of it. Right. Would that require, like, a spark or anything? It does. But, like, if you drop dynamite from a certain height, it'll explode. If you drop nitroglycerin from a much lower height, like nitroglycerin without the clay, Mm -hmm. it will explode very easily. And so this is like, if you move the box too much, it'll explode. Fuck, okay. And... Crystals also form on the outside of the sticks, which makes them even more likely to have friction that might cause an unwanted explosion. So if you're storing dynamite, they recommend that you turn over the sticks, rotate them regularly, and don't let them sit too long, because otherwise it's bad news. So this is like this team of documentary filmmakers, right, going and 
to explore the Shoshama people. Who, yeah. who knows who they are? The, the people, people of, of the, the mist. mist. <laughs> I don't know. It's misty down there. Right. I wanted to see some crazy nature doc stories, right? You always hear about the, the hiding out in t- tents and, you know, them having to be there for months on end and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, like the years it takes to make planet Earth. Right. Because that was the first one. I, I've always loved nature docs, but that was the first one that, like, blew my fucking world apart, mm-hmm. right? As for most people. Because, you know, the BBC spent five years making planet Earth before it aired in 2006. And they, you know, basically introduced us to this, like, high-definition documentary filmmaking that just simply would not have been possible beforehand. So that you're using, like, heat-sensitive cameras and stabilized rigs and drones and stuff. The tagline initially for Planet Earth was, the world as you've never seen it before. But what they were trying to do with Planet Earth 2 is make it the world like you've never experienced it before. I haven't even watched Planet Earth 2. It's, I can only fucking imagine. Ten it's years. so good. Yeah, like ten years of, of new technology. You know, the original 11-part series was doing a lot of the kind of God's eye view, mm-hmm. like the aerial, you know, helicopter-based stuff. But it sounds like this new one, everything's like m- much smaller and more intense to the point where like a lot of the filmmakers, they won't even know what they captured until they're able to go back and right. slow it down. Well, yeah, there was like something that they captured in Planet Earth 2 that had never been captured before, mm-hmm. which was like these really elusive tigers peeing on these rocks to mark their scents. Wow. Okay. And they got so much footage of these things pissing all over these rocks. Right. It's insane. But like just thinking about the advent of digital film Mm -hmm. rather where you can actually like shoot for hours and hours and hours rather than like, well, we have about 50 feet of film left and then we're going to have to go bring that home to develop it and stuff like that. Like it just you have to be rolling on so much in order to hopefully capture the perfect shot. I mean, there's a reason why it takes five years because you're not only like mapping out where you're going to be, but it's like you fucking nature doesn't play by your rules. It's going to do its thing. But again, with these like high frame rate cameras, you know, I was reading about how like in the jungles episode, they talk about filming this glass frog who's like the size of your fucking fingernail Mm -hmm. and they get into a fight with a swarm of wasps and the filmmaker didn't even know like what took place until he was able to go back and and, like follow along. And then even something as simple as like stabilizer rigs, right? You just just put any camera in the cradle, you turn on the stabilizer and you're able to like run alongside these monkeys as opposed to, <laughs> you know, having to use tripods and this what seems like very elementary yeah. kind of stuff. Well, thinking about like the old David Attenborough documentaries, all they could do was like kind of from afar, like zoom in, right, zoom right. in on that. But mm-hmm. one of my favorite nature documentaries that came out a little bit before Planet Earth and that blew my world away was this thing called winged migration Mm -hmm. which is all about birds and it took them more than four years to do this and what they did was they started by playing the sounds of film cameras outside the eggs of the birds right so they got used to them Mm -hmm. and then they had like this special super quiet plane or you know it was like a flying device that they were not a drone though it wasn't a drone it was manned oh okay it was incredibly quiet and then they like taught the birds as though it was their mother so the birds were totally normal with the cameras and flying alongside this like these right. people who were flying up with them and they got footage of birds flying nothing like it had ever been seen before yeah so many weeks of planning beforehand to even figure out like where should we set these up right mm-hmm. but like you were saying you want to make the animals as comfortable as possible once they get mm-hmm. used to you you know there's some animals that just have never been taught to fear humans so they might not be as crazy but that's why it's like the combination of just being there so that the animals can settle down for example like the cameraman gets into the whatever blind or hide that they've made and then like another person walks away and so the idea is that the if the animals keep seeing people coming and going they they're not able to keep track of everyone so they don't know 
maybe, oh, that guy came out of there. That must have been the other guy that I saw. But meanwhile, right. the cameraman's like, ah, I've been sitting here for hours, you know. <laughs> so it's it's kind of like both outsmarting them, but also maintaining that respect. That's what I got the, the sense of too, right? Is like, you really don't want to fuck with these animals. You want to get the most natural interaction, which is why there's no people in it. You don't see the right. animals like interacting with the people. Right. I think where I would be a complete disaster is if I see some attack happening or like a little baby seal, I would have yeah. a really hard time to not be like, Fuck it, I'm going in. I know. I'm saving this little guy. You've been guy. like following the seal's like yeah. life since its birth and yeah. you've grown attached to it and then you're like watching this thing that definitely happens all the time in nature and you're trying to capture it but my god, right. to not actually intervene. I know, that's that weird delicate balance because like we are, most of us inside are pretty altruistic and like don't want right. to see animals suffer. I always have a really hard time making that next step to like, but if, if the shark doesn't eat, it too will die. And right. I'm like, yeah, but not a cute baby seal. But then there's stuff too. where it's like this bird is like going to die over the next two days and it's just going to suffer until right. it does. And like they just have to roll on I that totally. because you want to capture these things that happen when we're not looking. But mm. at the same time, it's like, like but we are help looking. the little baby. <laughs> yeah, we are looking. <laughs> so... We saw these like big old statues of the Shuashama people with their snakes, right? Because yeah, they, they worship snakes. Blah. Yeah, as they go through the wilderness, you yeah. see like big totem poles Just and occasional reminders like, oh, yeah, we're out here for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. We're documentarians. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> this got me thinking about totem poles. I wanted to read about that. Now, Beginning in the 1700s, many Native American tribes in the Pacific Northwest region created totem poles. And one of the most popular misconceptions about this is that like all Native American tribes had this, but that's not the case. Only certain tribes, the Apache and the Cherokee tribes, they did not use these at all. The, the, the six tribes that did so in large numbers were the Tlingit, the Haida, the Bellacula, the Chinook, the Shimshian, and the Coast Salish. A lot happening wow, there. I, I wish I, don't I knew even any know of those. that I've heard of any of them. Exactly. But like Pacific Northwest, I guess that make I don't know. Like I, I need to do a dive on Native American tribes. That's yeah. my homework for, for the rest of my we'll life. We'll do Pocahontas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> Get out. Anyway, so these tribes placed totem poles throughout their lands. The, the poles were typically from just over nine and a half feet tall to nearly 60 feet tall. Now, all of them were made out of tree trunks. So they were carved by hand, which is like fucking nuts. So these were like okay so the, I, I never thought of for some reason I always imagined that they planted the whole pole oh, it wasn't no. like a tree so it was a tree that was already in the ground yeah Duh. yeah jeez man makes a little bit more sense <laughs> yeah right? it does it's now like, that I think cut about this it. down carve it all up and then prop it back up yeah now European missionaries who first visited these indigenous tribes they incorrectly reported that they were using the totem poles for worship but that is not the case they were just you know merely symbolic artistic traditions and structures just like paintings just Basically. instead of a painting you carved out of a tree yeah and that some of them sense. they had they had different meanings so totem poles became the most popular in the 1800s because like with the new trade system these tribes had access to more advanced tools which made carving the totem poles easier so they could create these like much larger more intricate designed poles and again yes also from tree trunks but there were different types of totem poles certain images did appear pretty frequently like common figures were the raven which symbolized creation the Ooh. eagle which represented strength and the killer whale which signified guardianship Whoa. now other common images included bears for humility frogs for stability I'm not sure about that hmm. i feel like i would slip right off of a frog yeah that's not a stable <laughs> thing at all Whoa. 
<laughs> wolves for leadership and beavers for determination, which I can get down with. They're fucking, they're creating dams out of wood, just chewing away. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. In, you You're know, a busy I went, little beaver. I'm really determined. <laughs> I went to a camp called Camp Winaki, which mm-hmm. was on Winnipesaukee, mm-hmm. and there were like light native american roots to its traditions i mean we were all jews we were all white (laughs) jews right right. but we had this thing called tribal war where you would split the whole camp into four groups and then everybody would like fight you guys want to play tribal war yeah i know but it was like you know and then we would like play volleyball and stuff like that and whoever like won the most sports would eventually be the winner but just thinking about what they were they were all ones that you mentioned there was the eagles Mm -hmm. there was the beavers Mm -hmm. and Fuck, I don't remember the last one. Well, but they also, the totem poles, they sometimes told stories or like depicted certain special events or special people. They generally fell into like six different overarching categories. So there was the welcome pole, which is one of the tallest types of totem poles. And that was just placed along the outskirts of a community to welcome visitors. Then there was the ridicule poles, which were erected to attract attention to certain individuals who broke tribal rules or taboos. But this was also commonly used to like shame people or families who are unable to pay their debts. And, you know, the images of these were supposed to depict the people being ridiculed. But then once they like, you know, paid their debts and whatnot, got over that shit, then the poles were removed. So it's not like you have the ridicule. (laughs) Yeah, it's like putting the dunce cap on somebody waiting in the corner until you're until you're scot free. Scarlet letter. Yeah, exactly. There were the heraldic poles, which were placed in front of a family's dwelling. And that was to record the history of a family or clan, like a little little family tree situation. Like the way that you mark people's heights as they grow up on a door you do that with the totem pole perhaps or i think it's more of they would like display the the clan's crest or like whatever their associate associated (laughs) (laughs) our version might be like a little stick figure drawing of ours my dad is my mom whatever okay the sun up in the corner (laughs) there was the indoor house pole which was part of a home's infrastructure and these were usually only eight to ten feet high and they actually balanced the roofs of family homes so some families had up to like four or five indoor poles and this would also depict family lineage but it sounds to me like it was also just like and let's keep your roof up <laughs> oh, like they were actually just posts. <laughs> like literally just posts that they're like eh, let's make i like design. that idea of like making the support structure of your home out of representations of your ancestors totally like that's such a cool it's that whole dynamic between form and function jeff <laughs> yeah <laughs> when you can put them together yeah transcendence happens <laughs> there's of course memorial poles which were temporarily erected to memorialize specific clan leaders now uh, you know, according to many traditions, a totem pole would be placed in front of a deceased chief's family home exactly one year after he had died. Oh. These poles usually included only one image of the former leader, but animal images could also be featured towards the bottom. I oh. love I love the like spirit animal thing. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's got people are like, <laughs> yeah. what's your spirit animal, Joy? I'm like, house cat, obviously. <laughs> so that would be maybe be like me with like a thumbs up and then just like a bunch of bunch cats, of cats underneath. Bottom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then finally, there's the mortuary poles. These stood about 50 to 60 feet high. These were some of the tallest, and they were used for ceremonial burial purposes. So this was only for like extremely important individuals. So the other one, the memorial one, was like a year after. This is for the actual burial process. So it was it like a tombstone almost? Yeah, so like the important individuals that are being honored were buried with them. So the poles could be made into grave markers or like grave posts and stuff. They could even be made into like a grave box. So like the, hmm. the poles would support larger enclosed coffin-like box in which the individuals I are I want buried. a coffin that's like, the, that the outside of it is like a totem, totem pole. pole. That's yeah. fucking cool. Four fucking totem poles surrounding your little... Your little carcass. I want that. My carcass. Now, what fucking sucks, as with is most of the case with the Native American stories, what happened to them, 
1876, mm. there was the Indian Act, which made life very difficult for British Columbian tribes that, you know, created these totem poles. So, of course, officials were trying to get the First Nations assimilated with into Western culture, whether they liked it or not. And mm-hmm. so, like, religious ceremonies were banned. You know, children were forced to attend certain schools. Many religious artifacts, including totem poles, were taken from them. So by 1900, most tribes had stopped making them altogether. In 1934, the U.S. Forest Service began a campaign to preserve and protect old totem poles well good for us we really did them a favor yeah we really (laughs) uh really uh stepped in all that time later 1934 far too late oh god but yeah Woo! totem poles now they cost like upwards of sixty thousand dollars to make so some you know some tribes i guess are making money off of it coming back back. well i mean hand carving wood is like a commodity that people like to have in their homes (laughs) (laughs) just trying so hard like so much guilt and sadness over all of this i i assumed that there was like something else to it but i really like the idea that it was mostly the statues that they had like they didn't have marble works they had wood to carve things out of and so it's like their artistic expression well and just the idea of like a welcome pole yeah what's that's great we have signs we still use signs. <laughs> Totem poles. Did you have any favorite lines? Oh, just over and over again, I'll keep saying, you need protection. <laughs> oh, no, no, this is my favorite line in the whole yeah. fucking thing. It's been a long time since I had a woman. <laughs> John Boyd. Oh. Is very creepy. It's <laughs> just movie. the worst. Oh, I will say one thing that I wanted to explore, but there were obviously like much more important things to explore. I wanted to look into the puka shell phenomenon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Why? Just like suburban white boys far and wide yeah. throughout a certain period were just like, I need to wear puka shells. I'm, I'm like, sure where did Abercrombie come into play? <laughs> That's Fucking a good question. Billabong. <laughs> look, I'm sure we're going to do another movie from the late 90s, and I'm sure you'll have an opportunity to do yeah. it. It's just Owen Wilson was like such a fucking surfer dude. He I was really like, was. Anyway, did you? My favorite line was something that you said. Okay. Because you were talking about you need protection from the anacondas. Oh, yeah. And then they picked up like the shedded anaconda skin and you were like, it's an anaconda. Oh. And I lost it. <laughs> I Just thought that way... was fucking perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. Dude, you need protection, put on that anaconda. Put on that you know anaconda, I mean? if you know what I mean. <laughs> That tells you where our heads were while watching this movie. Yeah. Just like slapstick magoos. <laughs> anyway, I love anacondas just for being badass. Yeah, I don't really, really ever cool want to hang out with one, though. No, I wouldn't have one yeah. in my home. I'll enjoy them from afar. Yeah, but you can please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at Oh That's a Thing on Facebook and Twitter and .com. <laughs> I'm at It's a Joy Mia on Twitter and Insta. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and next week we're doing Judge Dredd. Oh, boy, I dread that judge. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot going on. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you guys have an awesome weekend. We would love to hear from you. Always, always up for suggestions and new, new fun facts. Bye. Bye, guys.